How many have seen the movie God's Not Dead? Okay, all right, a few more. Well, you know, if you think about it, there's not too many trips you make to the theater that you go away inspired for God, you know? It's not very common. It can be rare, but there are those times when something just kind of clicks and it gets the attention of Christians. It merits the attention of Christians. God's Not Dead is just such a movie. Now, without giving away too much of the story, it's about a college student, Josh Wheaton, who has his faith challenged by his philosophy professor. How many took philosophy in college? Some of those professors, right? Right? Some are great, but this guy's the epitome of one that's not so great. So Josh has to uh, basically defend God's existence in front of the class. It's a class of about 80 students, and uh, he gets three chances, three different classes, and he has to do this. Unfortunately, that this, the, this story is not that far-fetched. It's pretty possible, pretty relevant. When you consider that some of our most prestigious universities, like Yale and Harvard, Princeton, to name a few, were founded to train ministers. That's what they were founded for. Many universities were. Standing up for God on today's college campus is a sad testament to that because it's all too common for it to look like that. A professor, an atheist, challenging a Christian student. Now, the movie has some powerful messages, some good lessons in it to learn. And it asks some questions that may even bring some trouble to Christians. They're hard to answer. So today we're beginning this four-part series to try to look at some of those questions in this movie. See that we should be able to handle them. Maybe not answer them, but at least able to handle them. This morning we're going to tackle the first question. Where is God when life falls apart? Now, you know, we're in church, so everybody's faith level is up high now, right? Yeah, we got faith, we got that, but you know how it is. In the quiet of the night, you're going through something horrible. You're asking, where is God right now? My life's falling apart. So that's the question. How many times have we heard someone say, a God who allows horrible things to happen to innocent people is not the kind of God I want to worship? How many times have we heard, how can a loving God allow innocent people to be hurt so badly? Now, that's a fair question, and it can leave even the strongest believer scratching their head. Regarding such pain in the film, Josh Wheaton quotes C.S. Lewis. Here's the quote. Evil is atheism's most potent weapon against Christian faith. Evil is the atheist's most potent weapon against the Christian faith. How do we explain the evil that's all around, the tragedies? Columbine, a tsunami in Japan, a typhoon in the Philippines, constant famines in Africa, young men and women killed in wars, terrorist bombings that maim and kill people, fatal car accidents, infant deaths, the Holocaust, a loved one with cancer, 
Shouldn't everything be nice and easy if a loving God is really in control? The answer is no. Jesus made it clear. He said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus was a straight shooter. He did not pull punches. He didn't mince words. He made it clear that this little blip on the timeline that we call our life will have sorrows, it'll have tribulations. God has permitted a broken world to infect us and affect us. But it's only through him that we can find peace in the midst of troubles. Evil is obviously real, so why does God allow it? For a start, let's take a look at one pivotal scene in the movie, God's Not Dead. This is Josh's last lecture. As I told you, there were three times he was supposed to give a lecture debating and defending God's existence. And this is his last one. Let's watch it. said that evil is atheism's most potent weapon against the Christian faith. And it is. After all, the very existence of evil begs the question, if God is all good and God is all powerful, why does he allow evil to exist? The answer at its core is remarkably simple. Free will. God allows evil to exist because of free will. From the Christian standpoint, God tolerates evil in this world on a temporary basis so that one day those who choose to love him freely will dwell with him in heaven, free from the influence of evil, but with their free will intact. In other words, God's intention concerning evil is to one day destroy it. Well, how convenient. One day, I will get rid of all the evil in the world, but until then... You just have to deal with all the wars and holocaust, tsunamis, poverty, starvation, and AIDS. Have a nice life. <laughs> Next, you'll be lecturing us on moral absolutes. But why not? Professor Radisson, who's clearly an atheist, doesn't believe in moral absolutes. But his course syllabus says he plans to give us an exam during finals weeks. Now, I'm betting that if I manage to get an A in the exam by cheating, he'll suddenly start sounding like a Christian, insisting it's wrong to cheat, that I should have known that. And yet, what basis does he have? If, if my actions are calculated to help me succeed, then why shouldn't I perform them? For Christians, the fixed point of morality, what constitutes right and wrong, is a straight line that leads directly back to God. Oh, 
So you're saying that we need a God to be moral, that a moral atheist is an impossibility. No, but with no God, there's no real reason to be moral. I mean, there's not even a, a standard of what moral behavior is. For Christians, lying, cheating, stealing, in my example, stealing a great idea and earn are forbidden. It's a form of theft, but if God does not exist, as Dostoevsky famously pointed out, if God does not exist, then everything is permissible. And not only permissible, but pointless. If Professor Radisson is right, then all of this, all of our struggle, our, our debate, whatever we decide here is meaningless. I mean, our, our lives and ultimately our deaths are no more consequence than that of a goldfish. Well, this is ridiculous. So after all your talk, you're saying that it all comes down to a choice. Believe or don't believe. That's right. That's all there is. That's all there's ever been. The only difference between your position and my position is that you take away their choice. You demand that they choose the box marked, I don't believe. Yes, because I want to free them. Because religion is like a, it, it, it's, it's like a mind virus that parents have passed on down to their children. And Christianity is the worst virus of all. It slowly creeps into our lives when we're weak or sick or helpless. So religion is like a disease? Yes. Yes, it infects everything. It's the enemy of reason. Reason? Professor, you left reason a long time ago. What you're teaching here isn't philosophy. It's not even atheism anymore. What you're teaching is anti-theism. It's not enough that you don't believe. You need all of us to not believe with you. Why don't you admit the truth? You just want to ensnare them in your primitive superstition. What I want is for them to make their own choice. That's what God wants. You have no idea how much I'm going to enjoy failing you. Yeah, but who are you really looking to fail? Professor. Me or God? Do you hate God? It's not even a question. Okay. Why do you hate God? This is ridiculous. Why do you hate God? Answer the question. You've seen the science and the arguments. Science supports his existence. You know the truth. So why do you hate him? Why? It's a very simple question, Professor. Why do you hate God? Because he took everything away from me. Yes, I hate God. All I have for him is hate. How can you hate someone if they don't exist? See, if we're really honest, the only truthful answers to some of these questions that come at us, even if they're our own questions, is ignorance. Sometimes we just have to plead ignorance. It's okay to say to someone who challenges you on something that that horrible thing happened, to say, I don't know. I don't know the mind of God. Now, it may not satisfy, but it's honest. 
We simply don't know everything, and we need to be okay with that. The Apostle Paul said, now we see only a reflection in a mirror. Then we, then we will see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am known fully. God has, however, given us some things that are certain. Truths to steer us toward a better understanding of Him and His ways. These overarching truths are like headlights on a dark road of life that Scripture reveals about Him and about our broken world to help us trust Him when the trouble arrives. These help us move forward in faith, even if the answers to the why questions remain puzzling reflections until we get to see Him face to face and ask Him. Our Bible does give us foundations. I'm going to take us through seven pillars of truths. And that will help us with seven more suppositions regarding our question, where is God when life falls apart? Let's look first at the seven pillars. The first pillar, God's character is loving, good, and righteous. Moses says this, You are the judge of all the earth. Won't you do what's right? It's a rhetorical question. As we see in the movie, the two of the characters, uh, they, they go back and forth with this little saying. One of them says, God is good. And the other one says, all the time. And then he says, all the time. And this one says, God is good. God is good. That's what we're taught in the scriptures, that he's good. Second pillar, he has given us freedom to choose to love him or reject him. He's given us that freedom. This is God Almighty, all-powerful, and he gives us the choice to reject him. Here's God speaking. I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Listen to the passion. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. True love is a choice. It's not robotic. The third pillar, this freedom resulted in a fallen world with evil and sin and real dangers. When Adam sinned, sin entered the entire human race. His sin spread death throughout all the world, so everything began to grow old and die for all sin. Everything is broken in this world. It's not how it was intended to be. Now, yes, I understand you can see beauty all over this world. My daughter just sent me some pictures yesterday of a place she hiked. It's beautiful, looking out over the mountains, the lake down in the valley. Yes, there's beauty. You can see uh, beautiful things in human beings. But things are broken. There's no doubt about it. And that's not how it was intended to be. It was intended to be perfect. Fourth pillar. He intensely desires restored fellowship with us. I love this verse in Isaiah. This is God speaking. Come on now. Let's walk and talk. Let's work this out. 
Your wrongdoings are blood red, but they can turn as white as snow. Your sins are red like crimson, but they can be made clean like new wool. God longs to be gracious to us, to be reunited in fellowship. He wants us to think about that. That's what he wants to do. Fifth pillar, his love is so great that he gave up his only son to restore that relationship. God has shown us how much he loves us. It was while we were sinners that Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get it all together and then reward us with salvation. We were already messing things up and he still died for us. And he didn't just say he loved us. He gave us his very best. The sixth pillar. Sin remains in our fleshly body and in the physical world, but only temporarily. Only temporarily. Paul writes to the Galatians, the sinful self wants what is against the spirit, and the spirit wants what is against the sinful self. They are always fighting against each other so that you don't really do what you want to do. The effects of the curse remain. Adam and Eve sinned, death came, that curse happened, and it remains. But it's now lost its power because Christ broke the power of sin and death. And it's not permanent anymore. It's lost its permanence. And the seventh pillar We can trust his finished work because he defeated death and sin by resurrection. We're made holy because Christ obeyed God and offered himself once and for all. The empty tomb proves that what Jesus said was true. He could have done all his teachings, all his miracles, and then when he said, I'm going to rise from the dead and didn't, it would all be a wash. It wouldn't mean anything. But that's not what happened. The tomb is empty. Jesus is truth. Now with that foundation, those, those seven pillars that the scripture teaches us about, think about Josh's answer about free will. Think of it like this. If you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend who was forced to love you, they had to be with you, they had to do whatever you wanted, a robot relationship... Would that satisfy you? Would forcing him or her to love you, would that really count? Would it be true love? Absolutely not. We saw this in Josh's relationship with his girlfriend. You didn't see that on the clip, but he's got this real domineering girlfriend that just wants to totally control him. God knew that we were like this. So he allowed us to choose to love him or not to love him. The consequence of that potential rejection meant that the world could fall and we would suffer as a result, but not permanently, only temporarily. God's goal was to solve this problem by eliminating sin. Listen to this. Christ didn't have any sin. That's a bigger miracle to me than coming back from the dead. (laughs) He had no sin. 
but God made him become sin for us so we can be made right with him. One day, this world of brokenness, our broken bodies racked with all the sin that's in them, will be done away with. We'll get actual new bodies in a new world. That sounds good to me. Maybe I won't have a beer gut in my new body. <laughs> it's all going to be new. And listen to this. John is, is getting a peek into the future. In the last book of the Bible, Revelation. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be anguish, sorrow, or mourning, nor grief, nor pain. For the old conditions which we're in now, and the former order of things, that's what we're in now, have passed away. We reinforce the truth of our brokenness our rebellion, our warped understanding of his higher ways by even daring to pose some questions to God. I mean, that just proves that we're rebellious. He's a perfect, benevolent God. Paul tells the Romans, you're only human, and human beings have no right to question God. Now, we question God, but we don't have any right We don't have any right to do it. He says, an object should not ask the person who made it, why did you make me like this? Doesn't make any sense. Imagine it like this. The baby that you and your spouse created, kind of created, has diaper rash. Okay, very common. But this is not just any diaper rash. This is a really bad one. Horrible, painful It's so bad that that the skin is cracked and swollen, red beyond even being able to touch without a scream from your little baby. Do you ignore it? Slap a new diaper on and say, it's all good. (laughs) Not if you love your baby. Instead, you may even go to the doctor. The doctor causes more pain with examinations prescribes baths and ointments to require more touching and towels and lotions. In the midst of this painful ordeal to heal the rash, your baby turns to you and says, what are you doing to me? (laughs) How can you say you love me when you allow this torturous rubbing? Your actions make no sense. Stop hurting me. Does a six-month-old baby that you created really comprehend your true motives, your helpful intentions? Does it understand bacteria, the chemicals in the ointment to heal, and the need to painfully apply it? Of course not. It only knows the pain of the here and now, not the importance of, of this future life of healing. Knowing the seven pillars, now let's take a look at seven suppositions. Seven reasons to believe something is true, although you do not have proof. You believe something that's true, but you have no way to prove it. Suppositions. Here's the first one. Evil is real, and people are blinded to their own sin. The Bible says you were once dead because of your failures and sins. 
before a believer becomes a Christian, before a person becomes a believer in Christ, they're blind to their sin. Now, this shouldn't require much proof. All you got to do is drive and rush hour traffic. People are selfish. They're mean. That's spiritual death. If you doubt it, then why do we all have locks on our houses and cars? Police carry guns. Metal detectors are everywhere. We see murders every day on the news. Do you consider yourself vain? Well, who do you look for first in the family photo? You. (laughs) Right? Evil is real. Sin is real. Humankind is infected with a self-centered nature. That's supposition number one. Here's supposition number two. His ways are higher than our ways. God speaking again. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Do you know what the context of that statement is? I read it earlier. That verse I said I love in Isaiah, when he says, come, let's walk and talk. Let's work this out. Let me explain to you that I can wash your sins that are as red as scarlet, white as snow. This is in the context of that. My thoughts are not your thoughts. What are our thoughts? He's a sinner. He deserves to die. God says, no, 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 no. Your ways aren't my ways. Your thoughts aren't my thoughts. Our indignation, our confusion, our questioning of God and his motives and his purposes for our lives demonstrates our rebellious nature. We question his goodness. What do you mean? He's on his deathbed. He's lived a terrible life and you're going to save him? After all the bad he's done and now just because he turns his life to you before he dies, you're going to save him? My ways are not your ways, says God. Jeremiah quotes God again. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. See, we can't explain the way God is or his ways. A.W. Tozer comes kind of close. He says, all God's acts are done in perfect wisdom. First for his own glory, and then for the highest good of the greatest number for the longest time. And all his acts are as pure as they are wise, and as good as they are wise and pure. Not only could his acts not be better done, a better way to do them could not be imagined. An infinitely wise God must work in a manner not to be improved upon by finite creatures. Wow. Supposition number three. There is no innocence. Everybody's guilty. Here's what scripture says. No one is righteous, not even one. You see, all have sinned, and all their futile attempts to reach God and his glory fail. You ever get caught in a mistake 
or hear somebody else get caught and, and the saying goes, well, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. It's an old adage, but boy, it nicely sums up our fallen condition, doesn't it? Nobody's perfect. At its very heart, this is a faulty question to ask God, why would innocent people need to suffer? Nobody's innocent. We're all guilty before a holy God. Can we not admit that someone who lies is a liar? If someone steals, isn't she a thief? If I break the law, am I not a lawbreaker? When we ask God how he could allow bad things happen to us, you know, he could turn it around and ask us the same question. How could you let this happen when I've done so much for you? Anything we receive in this life is by pure grace because we are criminals before a holy and righteous God who has every right to punish us for our sins. He has every right to do that, but he doesn't. Supposition number four. Suffering can lead to repentance. Repentance is that turning around. You're going in one direction, and you turn and go in the complete opposite direction. Repentance. Suffering can lead to that. Paul tells the Corinthians, the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience when we feel bad about doing something or feel bad because something's happening to us, that kind leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, I'm going to keep going in the same direction even though I really feel bad about what I did. I'm not changing. That results in spiritual death. And then he tells the Romans, don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? All those times you get caught doing something wrong, all those times something bad is happening to you, don't you see that it's his patience? Doesn't it mean anything to you? Paul says, can't you see his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Sometimes breaking our hearts or breaking our self-dependence helps us to see our need for God. It's not fun, but it can help us. Suffering can result in salvation, which is his goal for us. Pain can drive us into his arms for comfort, for answers, for help. In the movie, we see a couple of tragedies happen, but they are really an act of God's mercy because it's all about the person's eternity, not just the here and now. Supposition number five, suffering can lead to a deeper dependence on God. We all, the Bible says, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's our goal here at Cornerstone, to become transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. A bunch of individual Jesuses and a whole collective group, the body of Christ. We want to be transformed. This is the Spirit who comforts us in our troubles, 
so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. If you're a Christian, times of trouble bring you closer to God. And it can also be training ground for character, for faith. It can even be a way to comfort those who are going through something you've already been through. There's a reason for all that stuff. Supposition number six. I like this one the best. Let's blame the right guy. The serpent said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, Satan knew what God said. Did he really say that? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Do not even touch it. If you do, you will die. The serpent says, certainly you won't die. Come on, let's get real. Man, is he the father of lies. In short, we ignore the fact that there really is a being full of evil. He should take the blame for this messed up world. Not God, but how quick we are to blame God for evil. Along with the death sentence that goes along with it. God allowed for our free choice to love him voluntarily. And part of that choice is to choose to rebel, just as Satan did. That must be in place for true love to happen. The Bible, however, puts the blame correctly on a rebel named Lucifer, a real spiritual villain who decided God's paradise will be wrecked, or so he thought. And so this world, this broken creation, these broken people like we are, are spiritually dead. But it was never God's fault. Supposition number seven. Consider God's past dealings. The Bible says about itself, everything written in the past was written to teach us. The scriptures give us patience and encouragement so that we can have hope. In the Bible, there are several tragedies that that people of that time must have asked the same question. Where is God when life falls apart? Think about Noah and the flood. The Egyptians' enslavement of Israel. The destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Joseph being sold into slavery by his own brothers. The murder of babies by King Herod. And even the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. These were horrendous tragedies. They were events that God turned around and used for the ultimate good of humankind. When we consider past tragedies in the Bible and how God used our bad choices, we get a a glimpse of the purposes that can result for our good. We get a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, to take a look at the wizard back there. So in conclusion, we may not be able to answer all the why questions about suffering because God hasn't revealed everything to us yet. We can only see dimly now. 
like a foggy reflection. But we can see enough through the revelation of Scripture to trust Him and know that He knows the best for us. And ultimately, what He wants more than anything else is for us to repent in order to be restored to friendship with Him. It's like the prodigal son. He just wants us to give up and come home. Suffering can bring us to that point of acknowledging that we need His salvation. And we're not good enough, we're not strong enough to get there on our own. Nobody ever has. We know all suffering is only temporary. Now that doesn't sound real good if you've got to go through it for a whole lifetime. But a whole lifetime is not very long when it stands up against eternity. We can take heart and know that He has overcome this world. We can look forward to a world to come, a brand new world. Remember that your faith reaction to suffering could even lead an observant friend or family member to salvation, to their own salvation, their own eternity with God. God is not dead. He's very much alive. And all we have to do, all anyone we talk to about this has to do, is give him an honest, open chance. Instead of people spending all their energy and time trying to disprove God, why don't we try to prove him? And our faith is enough. It's not the only thing. There's evidence, too. We're going to do a whole message on that. Is my faith just blind? Or is there evidence for it? But let's spend our time being with the God that is so obvious, obviously with us. We can sense Him. We can see His work. We can see the miracles that He performs still happening today even though Jesus is not visually walking around among us. Why do bad things happen Where is God when everything's falling apart? We don't know all the answers to that. But with our faith, we can have some security in knowing that He knows what's best. And it'll all work out. It'll all work out. Let's pray before the band comes up. God Almighty, we we pray to You, the invisible God that that we, uh, we learn about. We learn about you, God. We, we learn that you're all-powerful, all-knowing. You're omnipresent. You're everywhere all at once. We learn about that. But God, we want to do more than that. We want to do more than learn about you. We want to be with you. We want to have a relationship with you. We want to hear your voice inside our, our hearts. We want to have the courage to obey you when we hear what you're saying. And God, I know your word says that, that there's a still, small voice that we hear of that's, that's you. But sometimes, God, it seems like you're just a loud crash of thunder. Your voice is so clear. Yet, people choose not to hear it. Father, maybe we have an overall belief in you, but 
I know there's places in all of our lives where we're not quite giving it over to you. Help us to do that. Help us to believe in you with everything we have. Because we know you're not dead. It's in the name of Jesus, your risen Son, our Savior, that we pray this. Amen.